Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Kia ora, Gateway Whanau. Welcome to our live stream, the live stream of our services. We're thrilled that you can join us from wherever you are in the world. Uh, we've been so amazed at people's responses and we've heard from places like South Africa, Dubai, Scotland, all around the world. We're so thrilled that you can you can join us. We've had some funny responses. Uh, somebody said, Don, I'm having my own shall chalet moment. I can't work out whether your head or Chris's head is the shiniest. Thank you so much for that. Um, we, we thought seriously about getting in makeup artists, but somebody else very kindly suggested to me that I didn't need a makeup artist, I needed a jib stopper. Um, never mind, we, we are delighted to be with you and thrilled to bring you this series of messages that we've called Watershed Moments. Um, I define a watershed moment as a turning point, that exact moment that changes the direction of a life, an activity, or a situation. It's the dividing point from which things will never be the same. And I've suggested to you that the Greeks had a word for it. Uh, The word was kairos. The, The kairos moment was a moment filled with eternal significance. It was a moment pregnant with possibilities for either good or ill. Um, When we become aware of such a moment, our natural response is usually one of ambivalence, uncertainty, indecisiveness. We know that we have to respond to this moment and we are aware that its implications are huge. And so usually there's a high degree of psychological drama associated with these Kairos moments. The Hebrew language doesn't have a word for ambivalence, but it has a tune for it. In the ancient synagogues, the scriptures were chanted or sung rather than being read as they are today. And the rabbi or the song leader, the cantor, would sing the appointed passage. So in the Hebrew scriptures, there is this rare accent, a a note, that's called a shalshalet. And it's a little zigzag-like mark that is placed above a word that indicates that the rabbi or cantor should sing it in a particular way. When it occurs, the, the person whom it's describing is usually involved in a psychological state of ambivalence and uncertainty. In the English, sometimes, sometimes we might say when we're facing one of those moments, um, uh, mm, uh. in the Hebrew it went, na na da 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 That's how the shalet was to be sung. And as I say, it always indicated a person being torn by conflict. They are grappling with a significant temptation or a deep inner aspiration and they aren't sure what to do or how to proceed. The Shalshalet note is a rare note. It occurs only four times in the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament scripture. And it involves people like Lot in Genesis 39, Eleazar in Genesis 24, Joseph in Genesis 39 and Moses in Leviticus 8. 
In the first message of the series, we considered Lot as the angels were trying to get him out of the city. Uh, he hesitated in verse 16 of chapter 19. And it's above that word that we, we find the shall shalet. Uh, Lot's pursuit of wealth as a means of establishing and securing his identity created a deep crisis for him when God told him that he was about to judge the city that he had tried so hard to assimilate into. Second message was on Eliezer. His moment of ambivalence centered around deep aspirations and perhaps deep ambition. He hoped to inherit Abraham's position and power. Now, I think that Eliezer's moment was actually a positive form of ambivalence. He was very self-aware of the deep aspirations he held and cherished, and yet he was spiritual enough to, to take those aspirations before the Lord in prayer in a, in a sincerely prayed, not my will, but your will be done type of prayer. Last week we looked at Joseph in Genesis 39 and his shall shall let moment was a moment of sexual t temptation where Potiphar's wife um, uh, made herself available to, to Joseph and, and he was faced with a, an incredible choice and it says that he refused. It wasn't a decision that came easily or quickly for Joseph. It was one of those wrenching moments. So the three shall shall let moments we've considered up to this point really center around the concepts of money, sex and power. Now the last shall shall let moment, the one we want to consider today, is, is very, very different. It involves Moses, and it's found in Leviticus chapter 8. Now, Leviticus chapter 8 is quite a long and involved passage that I don't intend to read in its fullness. The story is that Moses is consecrating and ordaining his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons to be priests. And a couple of verses read like this. In verse 12, it says, He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, anointing him and thus consecrating him. Moses brought Aaron's sons forward and put tunics on them and belted them with sashes and put caps on them just as God had commanded Moses. And then verse 18, following through to verse 23, it says, Moses presented the ram for the whole burnt offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and Moses slaughtered. And above the word slaughtered, above the idea that he killed the burnt sacrifice is the shall shalet. He then spread and splashed the blood against all sides of the altar. Now, remember that the presence of a shalshalet indicates a moment of ambivalence. Here it indicates that Moses is having something of an existential crisis. But the question that needs to be answered is why? It isn't easily apparent, as it was, say, in either Lot or, or Joseph, why he's ambivalent. Now, some Hebrew scholars have suggested that Moses was hesitant about anointing and ordaining Aaron and, their, and his sons to the priesthood because it was a role that he coveted for himself, that Moses wanted not only to be Israel's prophet, but also to be their priest. Now, I don't, I don't find that reasoning very credible. I don't think it sits well with what we know of Moses and what we know of the overall story.
In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6, it states, Moses was a quietly humble man, more so than anyone living on the earth. And we know from the story that there were times when he was overwhelmed with the role that he was already uh, fulfilling in terms of leading Israel. There was no sign of an objection from Moses when God took off his spirit and placed it on 70 other elders in the congregation to help Moses rule the people. It doesn't seem likely that he was looking to add to his leadership portfolio. Moses does not strike me as a grasping, insecure leader who has to be the biggest dog in the kennel and has to lead every department of the, of the church. Up until this point in Israel's journey, they had been led by Moses, who, has, who is described in the scriptures as being a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 says, as Moses is speaking prophetically about the coming of the Messiah, he says, and the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. So here's Moses the prophet. In Leviticus chapter 8, he's ordaining another form of leadership and of authority for the community of Israel. And it's a priestly form of leadership and authority. Since that moment in Leviticus chapter 8, Judaism has recognized two forms of religious authority and leadership. The Navi, the prophet, and the Kohen, the priest. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs distinguishes these two forms of authority and leadership. And he does it this way. He says the role of the prophet was not dynastic. It didn't pass from prophet to son, from father to son. Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer, didn't succeed their father in the prophetic office. Neither did Samuel's sons succeed their father. In fact, hardly any of the children of the prophetic men followed them into the prophetic office. So it's not dynastic. But the priestly role, on the other hand, was dynastic. It passed from father to son. Aaron to his sons, to their sons, and so on. The prophets were charismatic figures. Each imprinted their personality on the role that they were called to fulfill. No two prophets were exactly alike. The task of the priest, however, was primarily related to his office, and it was not inherently personal nor charismatic. Um, this distinction is reflected in, in their dress. Priests wore a special uniform that was related to their office. Prophets had no such uniform. Priests were somewhat removed from the people. They served in the tabernacle or the temple and they weren't allowed to defile themselves by normal activities lest they be disqualified. Prophets, by contrast, were usually part of the people. They could be shepherds like Moses and Amos or farmers like Elisha. Until the word of the Lord came to them, there was nothing special about their work, their social class or their dress. The prophet and the priest lived in two different modes of time. The priests functioned in cyclical time. Their ministries revolved around the yearly calendar, the feasts, the weekly Sabbaths, the daily sacrifices, liturgical, predictable routine. The prophets lived in covenantal time. The word of the Lord that came to them was usually radically unlike what came in another generation, different from yesterday, different from tomorrow. The service of the priest never changes. It's guided by prescribed ritual, and there's no place for spontaneity or improvisation. The last thing that you wanted was a spontaneous priest. 
In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, paid dearly for their improvisation. The Bible tells us they brought strange fire to the offering, fire not prescribed, and they paid for that unauthorized alteration with their lives. The prophets, however, served God in ways that constantly changed, depending on the time and the word of the Lord that was required in that time. No two words, as no two prophets, were exactly alike. So what we have here is the priests representing the structure of religious life and the prophets representing the spontaneity of the religious life. The priests spoke the word of God for all time. The prophet speaks the word of God for his or her time. Rabbi Sachs describes the difference between them as the never again and the ever again. The prophet is the never again in their uniqueness. The priest is the ever again in their routine. And Sachs goes on to note, Moses the prophet lit the fire in the soul of Judaism while Aaron the priest tended the flame and turned it into an eternal light. This is the ancient and continuing issue that people face, structure versus spontaneity. We need at every level of society, especially the religious level, a creative synthesis of them both. The tension between them is needed, hard to achieve, and even harder to maintain. Now, you might be thinking, at least hopefully from my perspective, Don, this is mildly interesting, but it doesn't go anywhere near to explain why Moses, why Moses was having a shall-shallet moment here. Why was he ambivalent? If he didn't want the priestly office for himself, which clearly I don't think he did, why was he ambivalent in terms of passing it on to Aaron and his sons? Now, this is something of an opinion, a little bit of supposition, but I wonder that Moses, as a prophet, could see something down the line, as it were, something regarding the dangers inherent in the kind of leadership that he was about to ordain. Um, As an aside, ironically, there are dangers in the prophetic form of leadership and authority as well. Perhaps Moses knew them only too well, or perhaps, like so many of us, it's actually easier to recognize and point out the flaws and difficulties in another person and be somewhat blind to those that are closer to home. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here. I really hope that you can stay with me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pull it all together at the end, hopefully. Some of you will have heard of a man by the name of Max Weber. Um, Weber was a German philosopher who's considered to be one of the founding fathers of the discipline of sociology. Weber studied leadership, and in his study of leadership, he noted that there is often a particular kind of personality that is associated with the founding of a new order or a new business uh, in society, and it's especially true in the religious dimensions of society. And he called this special kind of leadership charismatic leadership. He noted that they were often visionary, incredibly entrepreneurial characters. In the business field, names like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos come to mind. In a religious context, we might think of a Moses or a John Wesley or a General Booth. Now, Weber noted that as brilliant as these individuals might be, as vital as they are to the early stages of a company or a religious movement, what they create is inherently unstable. 
they tend to create a cult of personality with all its associated negative implications. What Weber did was explore what happened when these charismatic individuals passed from the scene. He noted that many times the organization or the movement simply couldn't survive the loss of the founder. The company or the movement just faded away and the initial experience and exhilaration evaporated and dissipated. Weber asked the question, what is the fate of religion after the epiphany? How can you capture the one time for the all time? How can you make the never again the ever again? And in studying this, Weber coined a rather ungainly phrase. He called it the routinization of charisma. And what he was talking about was the attempt to protect the newly emergent structures and to ensure that the movement or business continued and remained in fruitfulness. If the company or the movement was to survive the passing of the charismatic founder, then the charismatic authority generally needed to be succeeded by a more priestly form, a managerial type of leadership. Now, admittedly, when that happens, bureaucracy increases as processes are standardized. The free-flowing, non-routine spontaneity, at times chaotic leadership of the charismatic prophet, hands over to the more stable, more normal, in quotes, ordered and effective role that the priest brings to the table. In short, after that, Movements often make significant gains after the priestly manager takes over. However, in the long term, what can happen is that the press for efficiency, for standardization, what that, it, it clutters and quenches vision and mission. Fire and passion can be quenched and even lost. The patterned and the predictable of the priest takes over and completely overwhelms the very needed spontaneity of the charismatic, of, of the prophet. And in fact, that's exactly what did happen in history. By the time you get down to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see a priesthood that is totally compromised. It's... it's um, noted that, that Eli, who was the high priest of the time, was old, he was overweight, he was blind, and when he hears the news about the ark of God being taken, it says he fell backwards and broke his neck. Those features of the priesthood, a priesthood that's old and rigid, uh, that's self-indulgent and it shows in his obeseness, that is spiritually blind, that has fallen backwards and that it has broken its connection with the head. That's where the priesthood had come to. And I wonder that Moses' ambivalence in ordaining Aaron and his sons is related to the fact that he could see down the corridors of time and though he saw priesthood was needed to bring some order, he also knew that it had the potential to quench the life, the mission and the fire completely. That was the reason for his shalshalet. That was the reason for his ambivalence. And as with all of the other messages, I want to take that story and say, so what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean? Um, what, what does Moses' shall shall it moment have in terms of its relevance for you and I?
Well, I don't think things have changed greatly in many respects. And today we still face in every area of society the tension between the spontaneous and the structure. We tend as churches, as businesses, as individuals to tend either to the prophetic end of the spectrum or to the priestly end of the spectrum. Um, you, you can see clearly that exhibited in terms of the churches that are available to us. You have your charismatic prophetic type churches and they highlight free-flowing, non-normative, the experiential aspect of spirituality. For them, time is covenantal. Uh, today is radically different from yesterday, which will be different from tomorrow. They are what Rabbi Sachs calls the never the same. Then, by way of contrast, there are the more structure, if you like, priestly type churches who pride themselves on the stable and the predictable, the non-flighty churches. Time is approached in a cyclical manner. The yearly religious calendar dominates the way things are done. So you have the seasonal feasts of Lent, of Easter, of Pentecost, of Christmas, and so on. And, and each group tends to belittle and mock the other. And, and when it comes to structure and spontaneity, it seems to be very much an either-or proposition. There's no creative synthesis of the two. What you observe in churches, you also see in individuals. There are people who are, are very much into spiritual experiences, the prophecies, the charismatic, the spontaneous. And there are others who look on and just uh, belittle them as fruit flakes and nuts. The second group are into the regular, predictable, what they call sensible patterns and rhythms of their spiritual life. And so with individuals, it's either or. What I'm suggesting to you is that the scripture says it's not either or, it's both and. Just as our brains are bicameral, left and right hemispheres, and we need both left and right hemispheres, be the perspectives to fully experience reality, so with spirituality. We need both spontaneity and structure in our churches, in individuals. Spontaneity alone is inherently unstable. Structure alone is inherently dulling. And I want to encourage you today to believe that you can have life-changing experiences with God. You can explore and, and uh, be touched by the charismatic dimension of spirituality, where there is something spontaneous that happens, and, and it's the never again. Now, by, by saying never again, I don't mean that you will only ever have one spiritual experience, but the reality is the spiritual experiences that you do have are unique. They are generally not every day, not every month. Sometimes there's a long period of time between them. But to simply push them aside and say they're never to be experienced, I think, is to rob Christianity of its dynamic. Though we say these are the never again experiences, you can have those never again experiences different throughout your life. So I want to encourage you in exploring that, but I want to encourage you at the other dimension of life in terms of structure. The ever again. Without structure, spontaneity has a short shelf life. Experiences dissipate and are lost. Without spontaneity, there's no fresh life and we can end up with dead rituals. The challenge is to maintain the balance of the two forms, the Navi and the Kohen. The, the, the people that are at the priestly dimension 
are into spiritual disciplines. They, they, they have a cyclical view of, of their church life. And, and I think that that's very healthy. We need both the, spontane, the spontaneity and, and the structure. We need prophetic passion and priestly consistency. We need the never-changing and the ever-changing. In Leviticus chapter 8, Moses is ambivalent as he looks at the structured aspect of the spiritual life. He sees down the corridor of time, recognizes its dulling effects, and thinks to himself, do I want to ordain this kind of spirituality? I think that's the reason for his ambivalence. However, I could turn the tide on Moses or turn the, the coin on Moses and say, I wonder that Aaron might have felt equally as ambivalent as he looked at Moses and the charismatic form of leadership, the spontaneity, and thought, I see the dangers of that kind of life. We need a balance. Um, I suspect that we will always, as individuals and as churches, tend to one of those two ends. But if you tend more to the charismatic, you need to develop the priestly, the, the, the spiritual disciplines, the, the rhythms of spiritual life. If you are at the priestly end, you need to be open and available for the spontaneous encounters with God. We, we need a synthesis of both. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together, albeit by um, technology. We ask your blessing upon our community, upon those that are viewing with us today. And I pray, Father, that the power of your word would touch us deeply, would challenge us, that, Father, where we need to be recalibrated um, to one or other ends of the spectrum, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, challenge us, turn us, make us both passionate and consistent. Make us a people who are open and available to the spontaneous and that welcome the role of liturgical structure. That we be a people who are both wonderfully passionate and incredibly predictable and stable. Jesus, would you work that in us by the power of your spirit because we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.